Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast season two. My name is Birgit tremmel And my name is Martin Disenbury. In this season, we're focusing on the theme of wealth and the writing of history. We are delighted to be joined today by Professor Beshara Dumani from Brown University. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Today we are recording from the fifth meeting of the Swiss Historical Association. Professor Domani's keynote lecture on property devolution, Sharia and the making of the modern Middle East offered many crucial insights relevant for our understanding of value and the distribution of wealth. One of the questions of interest to people across the world is what happens to wealth after people die. That is, how is wealth transferred across generations? And why are these, as you argue in your book, family life in the Ottoman Mediterranean, not simply technical legal questions? So I would begin by saying that more important is what happens to wealth when people are still alive. Because in my research, it seems that most people did not wait to begin inheritance processes post-mortem or after death. Most of the thinking went into making arrangements before death. And this is what gives it a, a greater importance than simply a technical legal question um, because the amount of preparation and the kind of strategies that were followed to pass wealth, such as who to include, who to exclude, um, required uh, many decisions by the person who holds that wealth um, regarding his or her relationship to people while they were still alive, such as who would take care of them when they become old, or what branch of the family um, was more important to them, and so on. Uh, but for the period that I'm studying, uh, from the 17th to the 19th century, uh, the most important legal instrument for property devolution that would allow people to custom design um, the question of the devolution of property to different people under different conditions was the waqf system, or the family waqf. Uh, all waqf is charitable, but the family waqf had um, an escape clause before the m revenues of the lands that were endowed to be the property of God, which could no longer be sold and bought, uh, these revenues would pass on to one's biological descendants until they became extinct. Then it would go to uh, a charitable purpose. So ultimately all works are charitable, but the family work allowed this middle step. And um, well, people who were interested in um, devolving their property in a very specific manner, of course understood that they cannot foresee all different eventualities. How many children their children would have or who would die before who. So they tried to put conditions that would govern different possible outcomes. And this made the waqf a very much a living document because people would have to refer to it all the time to see what were the true intentions of the endower. And so the legal system itself became formative of family relationships, as much as family relationships also informed the legal system. And since this was all done in the places that I study, which are provincial regions in the Eastern Mediterranean, or Ottoman Syria, or Bilad al-Sham, Annapolis and Tripoli in particular, um, this living archive, um, was very important because the entire governance of the family work system was through 
the local Sharia courts. So people had a court right in the city which governed the family wolf. And could you give a concrete example of strategies here? I'm thinking, for instance, of the first chapter of your book on a certain Mariam. Mm -hmm. How did people design the future of the wolf? This is a, a court case that was registered in the Tripoli Islamic Court, I believe, in the early 19th century. Uh, in Tripoli, in what is today Lebanon. In, in Maryam's case, which opens up the book, her work was very unusual uh, in the sense that she combined the work with other forms of property devolution, such as inheritance, which are only supposed to happen after she dies. But she said, and when I die, <laughs> uh, then uh, the following should happen. Um, and she was so charismatic, I suppose, that uh, the scribe at the court wrote down many things that she said directly, uh, speaking to the future generations or to the larger audience in the courtroom about they better be careful not to do this or to do that. So I use that as the opening because it's one of the few uh, documents and otherwise very dry set of sources <laughs> that gave us insight on how a person would think of property devolution in its totality. So in addition to the specific example of Mariam, what does your research tell us about the relationship between uh, gender and wealth in that region? Well, I came across a puzzle uh, during my research, which I did not expect. Uh, after looking at hundreds and hundreds of wealths over a two-century period from the 1660s to the 1860s, uh, I realized that they all fall into four patterns in terms of um, degree of exclusion of females. Now, Tripoli and Nablus represented two ends of the spectrum. In Tripoli, one-third of all endowments uh, gave females equal shares to males. In Nablus, there were none in a 200-year period. Um, I would say, generally speaking, 99.9% .9 of all endowments in Tripoli included females, whereas maybe 80 to 90% of those in Nablus excluded them. And that's one big difference uh, between the two. There are many others, uh, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Do you have any ideas why is that? So um, this puzzle has driven me to examine very closely the political economy and the ecologies of the two um, cities, even though they're both famous as the sweets capitals of Palestine and Lebanon. Um, they're both famous for their olive oil and soap production. They also both have a reputation for homosexuality. They both can call themselves Little Damascus to describe their culture. In fact, the understanding and organization and reproduction of family life was very different between the two. And um, since they were part of the same legal system, same imperial zone, cultural zone, um, I was driven to look into factors that could be independent variables from that. And the local political economy proved to, to me to be the strongest form of explanation. It's not the only form, but it's the strongest form of explanation. Uh, very briefly put, the economic engine of Tripoli was uh, a very large green zone uh, in which they practiced urban agriculture. 
This was privately owned land just outside the walls of the city. Uh, it was irrigated land, and it was used for commercial crops. And the people of the city had access to these lands very close to their houses, and they managed um, everything from the digging and the cleaning of canals to the planting of trees to the pruning to the cutting of the mulberry leaves to the silk industry, etc., through various forms of contracts with people who would help them out, what I would call co-cultivation contracts, which gave uh, these helpers or these teams a part ownership of the trees but not of the land under the trees. And this system uh, was very accepting of female ownership and management. And I give many examples in the book which shows how females actually did not just formally own some of these lands or trees, but actually were very involved in managing them. Uh, there were few, very few barriers between them and this productive sector. And Nablus, uh, in contrast, uh, the city did not have a large agricultural sector. Their economic engine was um, uh, appropriating the surplus of the villages in the hinterlands, uh, which, whose lands were technically at least government-owned, not privately-owned, and which were dry farm, not irrigated, and uh, which produced uh, almost all the goods that the city needs to survive. And so merchant houses and artisan groups in Nablus uh, attempted to secure their share of that surplus through a money lending system, uh, which required a lot of uh, traveling back and forth to the countryside. It required establishment of long-term fictive relationships with specific clans or village uh, or peasant households uh, over generations. And uh, this movement back and forth um, was almost exclusively done by men. So whereas women could inherit, of course, in Islam long before um, in Christian societies, women were uh, very much recognized as, as uh, property owners in their own right. Uh, and women in Nablus did inherit a lot of property, but these women did not really have access to the main engine of the economy. So on the one level, as we've heard, your book and your research is very fine-grained micro-studies, mm -hmm. particular cases, particular mm -hmm. families, mm -hmm. the political economies of particular towns. But on the other hand, you're taking on a really big historiographical literature here, right? What's the significance of you finding that there's such a difference between two towns that are actually quite close to each other in very much the same cultural, political sphere of the Ottoman Empire? Historiographically, the stakes are multi-layered. One set of stakes has to do with the centrality of family, gender, property, and religion to this prestige zones of knowledge production about the Middle East, especially writings on women, Islam, and modernity. Um, th these uh, writings historically have depended on particular assumptions about what family is, how it looks like, its role in society, what religion is, and Sharia, and how does it operate, uh, that have never been really studied historically. So uh, to find a very different set of realities from the assumptions means that much of the thinking that goes behind these writings have to be revised. That's one of the layers. 
Uh, and many of those assumptions are tied up with Orientalism, broadly put, with the encounter between uh, the Eastern Mediterranean and European empires mm -hmm. and the ways in which then knowledge was created, which said that there should be progress from tradition to modernity and that this had an impact on mm -hmm. family structures and so on. Could you say a little bit about sure. that? Sure. Uh, in much of the writings on family and kinship, it's very clear that family is reserved for the West and kinship is reserved for the rest. And um, kinship is how European scholars imagine their tradition to be, but they imagine that is how the present of the other is. So they saw themselves having evolved from kinship into uh, effective relationships between a conjugal couple and their children. And they see that as the basis for democracy, for entrepreneurship, for the rule of law, and for everything that makes the West different from the rest. Um, and in terms of the rest, um, studies of uh, relations between people about things, especially things such as property devolution uh, and wealth management uh, were reserved either for anthropologists who, um, if somebody came from Mars and uh, looked at all the works in anthropology that were done until the 70s or the 80s, they would think the Middle East is composed of Yemen and Morocco, and there's no other part of the Middle East. And that's because they were seen as having preserved kind of their traditional structures. Uh, and to sociologists who copied modernization theory wholesale, uh, most of them, and saw kinship structures and religious institutions as inimical to or as obstacles to um, modernization. Um, so this question of modernization theory, which is a kind of a stepchild of Orientalism, um, is only a small part of these assumptions because Arab nationalists, Islamists also hold these assumptions. Um, they may do it in a different way, but it's based on the same idea that there's a monolithic family type that um, is the bedrock of these societies. So what are the major sources and what are the archives for your research? So the major source that I've used are registers of the local Islamic courts or Sharia courts in Nablus and Tripoli. We're talking here about uh, dozens of registers of several hundred pages each, which contain about 15,000 documents uh, that are not searchable or cannot be indexed and are handwritten. Now, the most important, I think, for me, uh, part of this was trying to understand the relationship between people and the court. Uh, not just between kin in the court, but kin and the court, meaning how were the court archives shaped by the daily presence of people bringing their cases to the courts, but also how the lives of these people were shaped by the fact that no matter how complicated their situation was, they could only enter this legal arena through a specific set of doors. And in order to create stories that would fit through these doors, they themselves had to anticipate in advance um, many of the issues that might come up in their lives and think about them in these terms that are permeated by Islamic legal tradition and discourse. So um, it really became a question of how kinship strategies and practices and, and 
Islamic law as a living entity uh, were intimately combined together. So your research on Nablus and Tripoli casts doubt on assumptions about family and Sharia in the past. How is that all important for other questions regarding wealth devolution? So may I begin with a confession about limitations? Um, property devolution through the waqf, as well as property devolution, let's say management through lawsuits, which we did not talk about but are very fundamentally important to this, because most of them have to do with inheritance and so on, uh, are only one part of a larger property devolution system, which includes uh, gifts, wills, sales, but also marriage strategies. Unfortunately, the archives I used did not shed much light on marriage strategies. Uh, so we have to take the findings with a grain of salt until we do further research. Another important uh, caveat is that uh, provincial regions, even though they are absolutely fundamentally important uh, to Ottoman history, and this is where most people lived, uh, have not been much studied. And so we know very little about them. Uh, so it will take many, many years for similar studies to allow us to compare, contrast uh, differences within the Ottoman Empire. Having said all that, what matters for me is that these lawsuits and waqf documents are like treasure chests of at least people's intentions and people's imagination of what family life should be like. So we have, I think, a direct, clear view into their understanding um, of what kind of property counts and who should have access to what property. Uh, how do you balance between a family's name and, a, and an individual's welfare? Um, and especially the question of uh, the place of women in the family. So in that sense, and regardless of what happened, uh, at the very least, the waqf remains a sensitive barometer to the cultural mindset of the people at the time. Professor Domani, thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you.